Hello and welcome to Talking Indonesia podcast. This is your host, Charlotte Stiadi from the ICS Yusuf Ishak Institute in Singapore. Today, we will be talking about the urban youth. Young Indonesians are often misunderstood. Many of the older generation perceive them as apathetic, entitled, narcissistic, certainly a far cry from the image of the Pamuda or the revolutionary youth who fought for the country's independence. Today's youth are allegedly more interested in hanging out in shopping malls and seizing selfie opportunities in order to create the perfect social media post. Indeed, even among Indonesia's analysts and observers, we have to admit that we don't know very much about the country's youth. And this is despite the fact that Indonesia has a young population and that over half of the country's population is under the age of 30. What do Indonesia's young actually think about social, political, and economic issues around them? Do they care about issues such as social inequality and environmental degradation? How do their consumption patterns reflect their values and aspirations? 20 years after the beginning of the Reformasi era, do they see much hope in regards to the country's future and the role they can play within it? I discussed these issues with Dr. Megan Downs, a Melbourne-based cultural studies scholar who has studied the urban youth in Indonesia and how they perceive contemporary issues like the environment, social concerns, and politics, particularly as reflected in their consumption and popular culture preferences. Megan received her PhD from the Australian National University, and she recently did a postdoctoral fellowship at the National University of Singapore's Asia Research Institute on a project that examines Indonesian urban youth engagement with the natural environment. Thank you, Megan, for joining me today. It's wonderful to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Great to be here, Charlotte. I'm looking forward to our discussion because, like I said before in my introduction, um, even as Indonesia analysts and observers, sometimes we don't really have a deep knowledge about Indonesia's youth. Um, And this is despite the fact that over half of the country's population is below 30 years of age. Now, I know that you've done research projects about post-Suharto youth in particular as part of both your doctoral and postdoctoral work. Could you give us a bit of an overview of the research that you've done and what aspects of Indonesian youth's lives you focused on in your research? Yeah, sure. And you're right. Indonesia has a relatively young population. And so, you know, they probably deserve a little bit more attention than they get. (laughs) And um, actually, this idea of the youth or the pemuda um, holds quite a special place in the Indonesian imagination, um, as that figure of the student activist is really strongly tied to both the struggle for independence against the Dutch and also to the reform movement that brought down Suharto's new order regime back in 1998. Yeah. And my own research looks at more recent trends in the post-reform Indonesian media landscape of the past decade. And a big part of that has involved working with young Indonesians, tracing their media and pop culture consumption preferences, and examining how this is tied up with some of their everyday hopes and fears and aspirations. So from 2013 to 2014, I ran a multi-sided study of popular cultural consumption practices across six Indonesian cities. And so these cities were Padang in Sumatra, Jakarta and Yogyakarta in Java, Makassar and Manado in Sulawesi, and Banjarmasin in Kalimantan. During that time, I lived in student boarding houses, holding focus group discussions and in-depth interviews with hundreds of these university students. And they were generally aged between 18 and 26. Um, It was a fairly gender-balanced sample and drawn from across a range of university faculties. Uh, Yeah. And this 
demographic of young urban educated people is by far the largest audience for things like films and novels. And most of our conversations centered on consumption practices, on popular tastes and trends, and the relevance of various themes and topics among young Indonesians. And in my more recent research last year, I focused in more detail specifically on environmental issues and on how young people are engaging with the natural environment in Indonesia. But my previous work was much broader than that. Before you go on, Meg, can I ask you? Yeah. So, so that so that's really interesting, like the the multi-sided approach. And um, I'm, yeah. I'm, you know, I'm I'm excited to hear about what you found. But can I ask first about why you decided to focus on pop culture consumption uh, in particular? Yeah. So I think that popular culture is a really interesting site. It's kind of a site that both shapes and reflects our kind of our everyday common sense ideas about the world. Like sometimes there's things that you hear repeated so much in popular culture that, uh, you know, it comes to be, it comes to be just a, an assumption, a common sense assumption. So I think that um, a lot of everyday ideas about important issues, um, the way they get represented and debated in popular culture um, is quite influential um, in shaping the way we think about the world. Um, and in turn, we contribute to popular culture as well. It's an interesting site um, of interaction between, I suppose, some of the more the some of the more dominant top-down ideas about society and about what is important for our future, and also some of those more bottom-up kind of um, consumer-driven um, ideas about what is important in our world as well. So that's why I find it a really interesting side and of stuff. And I guess it makes sense as well, right? Like uh, particularly if we look back on our own youth. God, I I know I'm making us sound like we're very old people here, but like I guess. Like, <laughs> You know, looking back at uh, our own youth, and also if you know, if generally, if we think about the lives of young people, right? Like particularly um, if they're still school age, and they and they don't really have um, a lot of personal uh, freedom yet in terms of um, uh, financial abilities or you know abilities to make um, their own decisions independent of their parents. I guess popular culture is where it transpires for them, right? It's where you know it's the one sphere of consumption that in many ways they get to decide for themselves, isn't it? Yeah, it's true. There's a lot of agency in choosing what kind of popular culture you're going to consume, whether that be music, whether that be film, whether that be fashion. And it can give you this real sense of agency over your life and also um, kind of positions you as a certain kind of person. So I know we've seen in Indonesia a lot, um, a lot of popular piety, as it's being as it's being called. So kind of Islamic fashions and Islamic soap operas and so on. Um, and by by consuming these kind of products, people can position themselves as a more pious or more moral person um, purely through a consumption choice. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, so from from the research that you've done here about the particularly about the media consumption aspect, what became apparent for you in regards to the kind of issues that matter for for different kinds of youth as well, right? Like I imagine that you would find slight or even big differences between like urban and rural youth and and youth from different religious and socioeconomic backgrounds. 
Yeah, so in some ways, young Indonesians share very similar concerns with young people anywhere, anywhere really. Yeah. Um, they are focused on their education, their careers, and also, of course, on romance, on fashion, <laughs> on family and friendship, all of those things that are really important. Yeah. Um, and in my study, there was, there was some minor variation depending on region, religion, gender, and socioeconomic background. Um, but because my study was mainly focused on students, uh, kind of urban middle class, um, educated youth, there were some really consistent similarities, even across all of those different um, different sites and cities that I was working in. So are we talking about under 18 years of age here? Uh, no, so I, because I was working in universities, it was mainly 18 to 26. Oh, right, mostly. okay. And yeah, so one of the recurring themes in my interviews with a lot of these people was um, because we were talking about consumption, like there was this strong focus on the potential of different entertainment genres and products to influence people's lives in yeah. both positive and negative ways. So young Indonesians who are hoping for success in the material, the romantic and also the spiritual sense um, generally really believe that um, positive and inspiring films or novels, for example, can have this really huge transformative power in advancing and developing audiences. Okay. Yeah, and I think on that note, it's worth mentioning that this idea of pembangunandiri or self-development has been huge in Indonesia during the past decade. And the motivational self-help genre is one of the fastest growing genres of the post-reform period. Oh, that's so, interesting. Okay. Yeah, so why, why do you think that is? So I think that one reason for this is potentially um, some of the disappointments with government um, where some of the benefits of, say, state-sponsored development or pembangunan have been called into question, leaving pembangunan diri or self-development as a more viable alternative. And so you've got bookstores filled with these huge spaces devoted to kind of inspirational self-help literature and guides on all kinds of topics from the benefits of positive thought to how to become a Muslim millionaire, just like Prophet Muhammad, which is a particular favourite of mine. Yeah, yeah. Also, yeah. There's also lots of seminars, motivational seminars on self-development and so on, often combined with religious elements, which is quite interesting. I mean, in some ways, due to this widespread disappointment with um, some of the failures of the reform era, um, and also at the time I was researching, there was this sense of uh, kind of precarity and anxiety about the future for Indonesian youth, even amongst some of these relatively well-off middle classes. And in this context, I think people are really keen to position themselves as enlightened consumers who can gain direct benefits from some of their media and popular culture choices. Okay. Can you give an example of that? So one area that I was looking into um, was the way that people talk about different genres, um, so film genres, for example. So a lot of the people I spoke to found kind of great joy in critiquing some of the genres that they saw as lower class or genres that, you know, meant to appeal to the, what they would kind of classify as the uneducated masses. So the horror genre, for example, in Indonesia was often brought up as this example of something that they didn't watch. That was something that was produced and consumed by less educated, um, less enlightened consumers, which was interesting because a lot of the, a lot of the people I was interviewing did actually 
enjoy watching the horror genre. And also the soap opera genre is another one that falls into this category. Or Sinatron, as they're um, yes, popularly Sinatron, known in. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, some people would actually watch these, but in in the way that they represented their um, their consumption practices. They would say, oh, if they did watch, it was only ever, ironically, it was only ever to laugh at it. It was only ever to confirm um, how much more of an con- um, enlightened consumer they were than some of the others. Right. Assumption choices. Oh, that's interesting. Um, so I'm I'm gonna pick up on the uh, on the religious and piety aspect uh, a little bit later on because I know that um, that has been um, uh, a very um, uh, evident pop phenomenon, cultural phenomenon in Indonesia, particularly um, among the youth. It seems. Um, yeah. But first of all, um, did you get the chance to also talk to some of the more rural youth, not as educated as the urban group that you interviewed? Um, and did you see any difference? between between the two yeah so I didn't get as much of I don't have as large a sample of rural youths yeah um, what I was able to do was during my time because I was spent such a long time living in these different boarding houses and some of the people who are attending universities in the cities are from rural areas and oh, so I see. some of the connections that I made I would often get invited back to say say weddings and events and uh, kind of you know special occasions Fitri and so on um, in various rural areas kind of in the peripheries of these cities that I was working in the interesting thing I found was that a lot of this um, self-represent Presentation trends um, were quite similar at the rural level as well. Uh, talking about self-representation, right? Like um, particularly if we think about Indonesian youth, um, at least what pops to my mind is social media use because yes. um, Indonesia is now uh, very much one of the one of the largest uh, users and consumers of. Um, social media applications such as Instagram, Facebook, and I guess there's even an Indonesian version called Path. So um, what about in terms of social media use? Um, Youth of today, you talk to the older generation, um, are often characterized as narcissistic and, and, you know, more concerned about getting selfies than than actual real-life issues. What do you you think about this? Did, Did the youth that you engage with uh, sort of um, are also uh, so-called selfie-obsessed and what are some of their motivations for engaging in social media in your opinion? Yeah, that's a really good question actually and I might answer by talking a little bit more about some of my more recent research on um, representations of the environment in Indonesia. Oh, fantastic, yeah. Yeah, so one of my recent case studies was um, the growth in uh, nature parks in Indonesia. So as cities in Indonesia become more congested, there's this growing popularity of dedicated nature tourism spaces outside the cities. So these spaces where urban youth gather to appreciate and often more importantly to photograph the natural environment. And so this is where the the Instagram and social media question comes in. So I visited several of these places during a recent trip where local governments have begun to capitalise on growing environmental awareness and also on growing demand for exciting Instagram opportunities. Can you give us some example of some of these sites that you visited, Meg? Yeah, there's there's lots of them. I spent a bit of time in several of the sites outside of Malang in East Java. They're these kind of photo-friendly mountain parks, which which are they're a side of what I've been calling Insta-environmentalism. Yeah. So visitors can pose with kind of these giant animals 
animal statues, they can lie down in birds' nests or pose on these kind of grass-covered beds and they're reminded to put their rubbish into novelty tempat sampa chantik, so which translates as beautiful bins, so they're all very kind of gaudily decorated. And there's often tyre swings, hammocks, tree houses. And like each each area has this kind of maximum five minutes rule, so just enough time to get some great photos and then move along. And there are definitely some elements of in pro ecological messages there. So the so between the trees, there'll be little signs hanging up with environmental messages and Indonesian translations of popular quotes like, you know, we do not inherit this earth from our ancestors; we borrow it from our grandchildren. Right. Okay. Um, definitely across all these sites the natural environment is being packaged first and foremost as an Instagram opportunity and everything has been designed with the primary purpose of facilitating these great selfies why do you and think sorry sorry uh, why do you think they've they, they've done that like the, so I guess because um, if we think about some of these ecological parks right um, some yeah. of them like you mentioned before are the initiatives of the local governments uh, themselves right to boost sort of ecotourism aspects um, yeah exactly so I think I think that's that's tapping into that market because there is definitely um, an environmental awareness in Indonesia and it's just about you know how it's being channeled and in these particular parks it's being channeled in a fairly superficial way because we have nature being framed kind of as this object for fleeting consumption um, and that I suppose brings us to the heart of your question about whether um, whether the kind of social engagement facilitated by these applications like Instagram is destined to be superficial and narcissistic or if there is potential for deeper engagement with conservation ideas and practices. Yeah. So it seems from the way that these parts have been set up there is there is very little encouragement for this deeper engagement with conservation ideas and practices. In some ways, it's quite a good money-spinning um, initiative for local governments because um, people have to pay for each photo opportunity. Kind of each little park will have a different entry fee, and some of the some of the most popular um, selfie sites uh, have an extra fee on top of that. So, on the one hand. You know, while you've got local farmers in the areas surrounding these parks facing these kind of imminent damaging effects of global climate change on crop cycles and so on, for these visiting tourists, they're encouraged to kind of undertake this leisure activity of nature appreciation as as mainly as this symbol of urban middle class identity. Yes. Um, yeah, I was gonna. I was going to ask the the class element because it sounds like it's very much a middle class activity that you know, from the sounds of it, really does sound quite superficial. Yeah, so there there is definitely that superficial element, and then there's also the contradictions between the conservation messages in these parks and the realities of waste and consumption there, with all the snacks and drinks coming so heavily packaged in several unnecessary layers of plastic. So yeah. it's yeah, they're a real site of contradictions, I suppose. Like the realm of social media itself because I mean it's easy enough for us to write off this Instagram engagement as superficial but I also think the reality is more complex than that because when I was discussing environmental issues with a broad range of Indonesians including some who who go to these parks um, they can often be quite critical of what is going on in and around their Instagram feeds and so during these conversations, several people raised these is this issue of economic inequality, inequality and 
expressed concern over what will happen to those profits from the entry fees for the new parks. So some people were asking, will the profits go to the local people, to the farmers? Will they fund conservation projects or will they simply line the pockets of government officials was another concern. Right, okay, yeah. Yes, and others also expressed frustration over the lack of waste disposal infrastructure in their daily lives. So <laughs> some, one um, participant asked, why should rubbish bins simply be a novelty item in a tourist park? Well, then they return home to kind of really normalised littering and kind of nowhere to put their plastic. And there's definitely critical potential among young people, but the way it's channelled can vary. And I often think that it's not necessarily about the social media platforms themselves, um, but the kinds of stories and messages that are getting circulated within them. In terms of like broader um, environmental concerns uh, regarding, for instance, traffic jam in Jakarta, the lack of infrastructure, broader issues, right, to do with social issues as well, such as economic inequality. Do you see the youth thinking about or engaging with those sort of issues and whether or not that's actually reflected in their media consumption? Yeah, definitely. So for this project that I'm working on at the moment, I've been looking kind of mainly at how these environmental and social problems and solutions get represented in Indonesian media and popular culture. Um, Because these stories that kind of circulate in media and pop culture about, say, environmental value, environmental vulnerability, social inequality, they do offer a window into popular perceptions and also a possible medium for transforming these perceptions. And one of my case studies, I I had several case studies um, from television advertising, from cinema, from social media, and I've been really interested in the kind of common stories that emerge across these mediums. So what kind of messages tend to keep coming up about the environment as these mediums get consumed and interpreted in daily life. Um, So one of my case studies was the advertising strategy around this new city that's currently being built by the Lippo Group. um, Oh, Mekarta. Yes. That's apparently going to allow those who can afford it to leave all of Jakarta's environmental problems behind. Yes. (laughs) And so in this campaign... You can see environmental issues like pollution and river health being used quite allegorically and symbolically. And the solution to Jakarta's ecological issues in this advertising campaign is quite scary and dystopian, really, actually, because it is simply to leave it all behind if you're wealthy enough and start again somewhere else. It's like a bad science fiction film, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and it's actually been, it's funny you should mention that because there have been some really hilarious parodies online, this this Maycutter ad, and some of them people will bring um, footage from various kind of teen dystopian films <laughs> um, to make their own version of the Maycutter ad. So there's been quite playful, critical engagement with this ad and when I was recently in Jakarta I I got a coffee at a cafe and there was a tip jar beside the register and on the tip jar it said um, kami ingin pindat ke Mekarta you know, we want to move to Mekarta <laughs> oh that's so clever <laughs> as if the tips that you're going to gather from working in a cafe will allow you to kind of join this. It almost feels like an off-world colony in Blade Runner or something. Yes, um, yes. <laughs> this leaving, leaving, leaving Jakarta's problems behind. And uh, another aspect of this is that this is the class aspect that I was talking about before. Yes. So you can see here, so you can see in this, um, this advertising campaign that the wealthy can 
move to another city and continue their unchecked consumption quite happily. The urban poor actually get um, lumped with a lot of the blame for, uh, say, the, the, the polluted rivers in the first place. So, and, and this um, was something that's quite evident during the, the whole controversy with uh, Ahok's government, for instance, um, moving people exactly. away from riverbanks. And, and um, analysts have argued that there was quite a big divide between how the middle upper class perceive it and how the urban poor perceived it, exactly like what you said before. Yeah, it's very true. And the, the discourse is often around education. So there's this um, so among the among the urban middle classes, there's this strong discourse that oh, the rivers are polluted because the uh, because the the poor are not educated enough not to throw their rubbish into the river. The rural poor get you get unfairly burdened with a lot of the blame for yes. these uh, for these urban environmental problems. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier in the interview about pious uh, consumption, pious, um, not just consumption preferences, but uh, ideas of self-image based on increasing religiosity among the young people, right? And um, some of the pop culture trends that we've seen in Indonesia to do with um, Islamic themed um, sintrons or films. It seems that you do see this rising Muslim religiosity among the young people. And um, if you look at recent surveys by polling institutes such as um, respected polling institutes such as Indicator Politik, um, Lembaga Survei Indonesia, Stifle Mulyani Research and Consulting, you know, they've shown that you know, today's young people are more likely to be uh, more religious, um, hold conservative values and be more conservative and say, for instance, voting preferences for first-time voters than before how what have you found regarding this trend in your research and you know and maybe your thoughts as well uh, as well on why this trend of conservatism um, seems to be growing among the young people yeah so I have definitely seen some seen some aspects of this trend so young people are very concerned with morality and particularly being seen to be a good moral citizen and um, they are also sometimes quite nostalgic and I think that this in some ways is related to the disillusionment that I mentioned earlier. So while there's been some delivery on the hopes and promises of the reform period, there have also been significant failures and disappointments and uh, people have lamented the kind of continued political corruption, violent conflicts and social inequalities. And so despite Sahato's record of corruption, collusion and state-sponsored violence, there seems to be this increasing nostalgia in Indonesia for the pre-1998 era and strong leadership. And religion can often be appealing as as, as, I suppose a kind of alternative framework when people are disappointed with the existing social and political system. And as I said, faith and piety and morality are really hugely important among Indonesian youth. And while the majority of these young people are Muslim, I'm very much wary of linking this idea of rising conservatism to Islam, because during my research, I found that Christian, Catholic, Hindu, and Buddhist students were concerned with almost exactly the same moral issues as their Islamic okay. Yeah. And was similarly performative in their piety. Yeah. So that's, yeah, that was one thing I found because there is often this talk of conservatism being linked to radical Islam and so on. But I think that's sometimes a little bit too neatly packaged to sum up the reality. Because I think that there are links here with broader global trends as well. I mean, you just need to look at Donald Trump's Make America Great Again campaign and the rise of conservative and right wing parties and politics all over the world to see that. 
this Indonesian case is not really isolated, but it's part of um, wider social and political pattern. Um, let me ask you then about hopes and dreams, right? I guess like we, yes. when we're talking about young people, particularly um, the, the ones that you engage with, their school age, university age, and on the cusp of really starting to join society. You mentioned before that they uh, do feel a sense of disillusionment over uh, the lack of progress in the reform era yeah. and you know and what the future may hold for them do you get a sense of the role they think they can play in the future not just in terms of their daily life but also in terms of the role they play in the indonesian nation state itself yeah so there was a strong sense among a lot of the people that i was working with um And this relates back to that, I suppose, pembangunandiri, that self-development idea I was talking about before, mm-hmm. um, that by, by, by succeeding themselves, they are able to give back to the community. And I mean, I, I also um, spent some time um, visiting people who were um, on the Indonesia Mengajar program. Yep. So this idea of kind of young, urban, educated Indonesians being sent out to various rural parts of Indonesia to um, to spread some of the knowledge that they had um, that they had developed during their own educational journeys. And there's a strong sense um, among a lot of the students I was working with that they they want to go they want to study abroad and then um, bring some of that knowledge back so I suppose this I suppose it's a bit of a marantau or um, journeying abroad to bring back um, knowledge and wealth that was a definite that was a definite trend in um, people's hopes and aspirations but sometimes I got the sense that uh, this developing self in order to develop na- develop the nation had a somewhat paternalistic overtone to it, especially especially when people would talk about, um, say, volunteering to teach in rural school. They were the enlightened bringers of knowledge I to see. backward areas, which can be a little dangerous um, in terms of, uh, yeah, the underlying ideology at work there. Yeah. So some both positive and negative aspects of um, these uh, um, trajectories of success, I would say. Okay, well, thank you so much, Megan, for telling us more about uh, young people's uh, not just consumption, but also active engagement. And um, it's given us a much broader and much more nuanced knowledge of Indonesian youth, um, a group of, a large group of um, Indonesia's population that um, is often misunderstood. So thank you very much for your time and for joining me today on the show. Great. Thanks for having me, Charlotte. That was Dr. Megan Downs. She is a Melbourne-based cultural studies scholar who has studied the urban youth in Indonesia and how they perceive contemporary issues such as the environment, social concerns, and politics. Talking Indonesia will return on the 1st of March. Remember that you can find the entire Talking Indonesia podcast archive at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog, subscribe via iTunes so you'll never miss an episode, or find us via your favorite podcasting app. Until next time, this has been the Talking Indonesia podcast. Bye for now.